137th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. Well, what's up, everybody? Sorry we're a little late, and welcome to episode 286 of Pixelated Paranormal. I, of course, am Sean. I ran almost two miles today, and I think I have shin splints, and with me, as always, is Preston. Preston, buddy, how are you? What's up, all you crocacoons and crocodingos, you cool ghosts and goblins, you skeletors and skeletons? Um... I decided to get back into drawing this week, and uh, I took a stab at what would happen if uh, the scene from the first Ghostbusters movies, where uh, <laughs> uh, they're they're rising the dead from the uh, their graves and they're they're walking about. So, what would happen if you were one of those tree hugging hippies and you buried yourself in a tree pod in a bag to bury yourself to give back to Mother Earth? You would sprout and look like a zombie tree. <laughs> You're not wrong, buddy. You are yeah. not wrong. Yeah. Well, I would like to quote the uh, great American meteorologist Alan Jackson and just say that right now in Wichita, it is hotter than a hoochie coochie. It's just on the, fucking just disgusting. Down on the Tattahoochee? Yeah. Except for we don't have any burgers or grape snow cones. But that's all right, because what we do have tonight is part three of our wonderful dive into the weird world of the most wicked man on Earth, Mr. Aleister Crowley. But not before we have one little news story. Now, this news story, we got to give a shout out to our buddy, Mr. Lazarus Corbeau, because he sent this one over to me. And I just felt like sharing it. And I think we're going to have to have him on to do a whole episode or two about cannibalism. But right now, a devil worshiper dubbed the Cannibal of Puebla has allegedly killed his wife, ate her brains in tacos, and used her skull as an ashtray before finally being arrested in Mexico. The suspect, identified only as Alvaro, was seized at the couple's home in Puebla back on July 2nd and taken into custody. The police accused the 32-year-old of murdering his wife, a mother of five, back on June 29th while under the influence of a prohibited substance. During the questioning, he allegedly told police officers that Santa Muerta and the devil had both ordered him to commit the heinous crime. Following the killing, Alvaro allegedly dismembered his victim, Maria Montserrat Animas Montiel, and placed her remains in plastic bags. Now, this part deserves also a trigger warning because it gets kind of gross. He allegedly threw some of the parts into a ravine behind the house and then kept the rest inside of the property. According to sources close to the case, he confessed to eating part of his wife's brain mixed into tacos, and then he used part of her shattered skull as an ashtray. Two days after the murder, he allegedly called one of his stepdaughters and confessed the crime. The victim's mother, Maria, told local media. He told one of his daughters to come and collect her mom, and he said, I already killed her and put her in bags. Apparently, he chopped her up with a machete, a chisel, and a hammer, and then went on to say that he threw part of the body into the ravine after he put them in separate baggies. He then added she didn't suffer. 
They got married less than a year ago. She had five daughters from the ages of 12 to 23, the youngest two who live with the couple. But it was said that he was on drugs and oftentimes liked to drink and snort cocaine. So God only knows what kind of mental state he was in when he committed these heinous crimes. But yeah, apparently he uh, ate her brains in a taco, which is just fucking bonkers to me. They haven't yet been able to lay Maria to rest because they're still searching for some of her remains and they have to finish the conclusive DNA testing. But mm. holy shit, what a way to start an episode. Yeah, fuck. Yeah, it seems like there's been a shit ton of that kind of stuff going on too, man. I mean, cannibalism, I think, is just uh, hot and heavy in the news right now. Honey, if you're listening, I'm too salty to eat. <laughs> You're not going to warn her that you're not going to eat her. You're just saying that you yourself are too salty. Oh, I'm not. I'm not into cannibalism. She doesn't have to worry. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's what I'd say too. Well, anyway, here we are again, part three of our dive into Aleister Crowley. And like we said back at the beginning of this whole Crowley road trip. We're not necessarily doing things like a beginning to end storytelling of Aleister Crowley's life because there's tons of other podcasts out there that have done that wonderfully, so why in the world should we even bother? Instead, we've kind of compiled some cherry pickings of some of his random misadventures, and on this third episode, what we're going to do is try to put together some of the missing pieces from in between some of the stuff we've already talked about. That way we can kind of connect some of the dots. So we've talked about a lot of fun stuff, like his trip to Cairo, Egypt, and how he accidentally summoned <clears throat> the Loch Ness Monster. Right before he left to go save all of his other fellow magic brothers and sisters from the grips of uh, evil leaders of the Order of the Golden Dawn, sex magic, the red the the red mistress or Scarlet Woman, whatever it's called. Yeah, Scarlet what Woman. Not, <laughs> what not what not to do with a a goat? You know, all the fun mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah, lots of goodies. Well, we're going to start things off with what exactly happened when Crowley went back to the Order of the Golden Dawn after he had supposedly summoned the old Messy Nessie, even though it was unbeknownst to him. And with also a request here, we had a request for this specific story from Crowley's life from Tony. So while Crowley was over in Scotland at Bolskin House in Loch Ness, trying his damnedest to summon his own personal guardian angel, back at the headquarters of the Order of the Golden Dawn, there had begun a falling out between two of the higher-up magicians, Mr. William Westcott and Crowley's personal friend Samuel Mathers. And unbeknownst to Alistair, a battle for ultimate control over the Order of the Golden Dawn had begun. Now this became apparent back when poet W.B. Yeats and other members of the London chapter were uncomfortable with Crowley's interpretation of their practices and their rituals. So they decided Crowley would no longer be welcome in the Order, and this made all the pro-Crowley occultists, like Mathers, pretty angry. So there was a bunch of turmoil, and apparently they started to try to do a coup. So when word got around to Crowley, he began anticipating a possible face-off with Yates. So Crowley consulted with Mathers again, a seasoned magician and the co-founder of the Golden Dawn, and Mathers advised Crowley on certain spells that he could use to convert certain Golden Dawn members into siding with Crowley. Mathers also recommended that Crowley dress in Celtic garb for protection any time he performed certain magical rituals. 
And the thing here is that both Crowley and Yates were totally invested in this belief of their occult skills and how they could have physical real-world effects on things they'd cast spells on. So Crowley planned a heist to um, borrow some more of the organization's top-secret papers so he could practice some advanced protection spells. And even though he was 100% sure that he was prepared to use his magic abilities to defend himself in case of any possible threats if he was to get caught, Crowley also was known to keep two daggers in his robe pockets just in case. Anyway, so Crowley and Mathers start spreading falsehoods around the Order, slandering Yates and Westcott's names as they tried their damnedest to recruit more fellows to continue their quest for domination. But Yates and Westcott heard about all this hubbub and they reportedly cast their own special protection spells and there were reportedly some pretty interesting results. Two of Mather's followers had their carriage suddenly caught on fire, and another woman, who was a Crowley loyalist named Elaine Simpson, was said to have spontaneously combusted after she put on a cursed raincoat. Now, she didn't die, but if you can imagine the rubber of a raincoat just getting singed to your body, this sounds pretty fucking horrible. So as the days grew closer and final preparation for the battle that Crowley and Mathers had been planning for to overthrow the Order... Mathers told his followers via a telegram they all needed to arrive at the Order's headquarters at a specific secret time on April 20th, where they were planning to storm the building and throw this all-out assault on Westcott and his followers. Basically imagine the final scene from Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, right? Just one giant all-out magical battle. So then on the day of April 20th, Crowley and Mathers, along with Elaine Simpson, yeah, the lady who's now thin and crispy, and a hired henchman arrived in preparation for their magical storming of the Order's headquarters. And Crowley even showed up in full Scottish regalia, only to find out that none of their other fellow members had shown up, except for poet and personal nemesis of Aleister Crowley, Mr. William Butler Yates, who had found out about Crowley and Mathers' plan and so, in order to protect himself and the others and the Order, Yates released one of the most powerful defenses that the magical world had ever heard of, preventing Crowley and company from entering the Order. He simply changed the locks on the fucking doors and locked Crowley and Mathers out of the building. <laughs> so anyways, they started banging on the door, and eventually the secretary, Mrs. Cracknell, answers the door... And then Crowley's hired henchman knocks her down on her ass, and the three others, Crowley, Mathers, and Simpson, all rushed inside and secured a couple rooms and began trying to lock down the building with a series of rituals and magical chants. Meanwhile, Miss Cracknell managed to get away and sent a telegram of her own to fellow Order member named E.A. Hunter for backup to help her kick out Crowley and the rest of the company. But when Hunter and Cracknell arrived back at the Order's headquarters, they discovered that they too could no longer unlock the doors to the building, and much to their disbelief, Crowley's new ritual of securing the building had worked, and their keys no longer worked on the locks that Yates had just changed. Was this the work of a magician and his magical spells? Had Crowley outdone Yates? No. Crowley, Mathers, and Simpson had simply given up, and they too changed the locks on the building's doors. <laughs> 
So Hunter and Cracknell just called the cops, and the police forced the three magical doofuses to vacate the premise. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. I like to think of the police as these magical doofuses' familiars. But the Battle of Blythe Road doesn't end here, folks. Because Crowley had one more magical scheme up his robe sleeves. The next day, he hired a couple more goons and showed back up at the order. But not before first going to the building's landlord and convincing him to unlock the door so Alistair could go inside. So then Alistair, Mathers, and Simpson all rushed back into the building and began screaming curses and assaulting members of the order yet again. And then... Alistair, who heard that Yates and other members of the Order were all taking cover up in the building's second story, he began to make his way up the stairs, yelling out violent curses and making the symbol of the upside-down pentagram in front of him for protection. And just then, like a scene from a movie, Yates appears at the top of the stairs, and he too begins to scream spells of his own at Crowley, who was rapidly ascending the flight of stairs towards Yates and the rest of the Order. So being the true master of his magical craft, Yates planted his feet firmly at the top of the stairs, took a breath, and then without hesitation, kicked Crowley square in the chin, sending him flailing and screaming as he tumbled down to the bottom of the stairs. One onlooker described the scene as this. When Crowley came within range, the forces of good struck out with their feet and kicked him down the fucking stairs. Is this witness protection? <laughs> and finally, with Crowley lying at the bottom of the stairs, crumpled in a bloody heap with a busted nose and a bruised ass, the landlord finally had enough of all their bullshit and called the police yet again. Crowley was told to leave the premise, and Yates then kicked out Elaine Simpson and Samuel Mathers from the Order of the Golden Dawn. And thus ends the most famous magical battle in history, the Battle of Blythe Road. <laughs> I love how Yates is like really, really deeply invested in all this, like Crowley, but he's also not above just saying, fuck this nonsense. I'm changing the locks and I'm calling the fucking cops. <laughs> magical spells? Try my foot, motherfucker. Yeah. So I hadn't read the uh, Battle of Blythe Road yet, but Tony asked if we'd please talk about the uh, magician battle between Yates and Crowley. So I looked it up and thought, holy shit, what? it's like a Monty Python sketch, man. Well, now let's travel back to the land of the pyramids. Back in the year of 1904, during a specific three-day period of March 16th through the 18th. Now, we talked about this a little bit, but I'm going to dive in a little deeper. Beginning back on March 16th, Crowley was performing a magical ritual in the hopes of impressing his then-wife, Rose, who was now pregnant with Crowley's baby. And in this special ritual called the Bornless Ritual, which would go on to last for three whole fucking days, Crowley was trying to summon a group of sylphs, which are basically ethereal air spirits or wind fairies. And something bizarre began to happen. During the ritual, Rose started zoning out and began rocking back and forth, muttering the words, They are waiting for you, slowly, over and over. Then the next day, Crowley was back at it again, when Rose began to fall back into her weird trance and started in with the muttering, but this time saying, It's all about the child, and occasionally she'd throw in, It's all about Osiris. 
Then finally on the third day, again, Crowley was trying to summon his wind fairies, and yet again, Rose slipped back into a trance. Only this time her words were more forceful, and she began to chant much, lo- began to chant much louder. The one who's waiting for you is Horus, who you have greatly offended. That's right, everybody. Rose was now claiming that she was channeling the great Egyptian god of the sun and the sky, Mr. Horus himself, which is also interesting because when she says it's all about Osiris and it's all about the child, Horus, if I'm not mistaken, was Osiris's uh, child, correct, Preston? Yeah, sounds, sounds about right. <laughs> Fair, we're going to roll with it. Yeah. But as cool as this sounds, it's actually confusing Crowley in the moment because to his knowledge, outside what he had spouted off during their little trip to Egypt, Rose was pretty much ignorant of any Egyptian history or mythology, so he had no clue how she was able to channel Horus. So just to be sure that she was talking the truth and not some kind of nonsensical bullshit, he decided to take her to the local Bullock Museum and kind of quiz her and see if she could, you know, tell one thing from the other or if she was just full of shit. And to his surprise, she was not only able to explain a lot of the artifacts to Alistair that he had covered up the info cards to, but she was also able to identify several statues of Egyptian deities, one of which truly impressed Crowley, because it was a rare depiction of the god Horus, only it wasn't his standard garb. Instead, he was in the Rahu-Kuit form, which isn't really you know, known to most people at that time. So it was just Ramatut from the comics. Oh, okay, sure. <laughs> I'll buy that. Yeah. But to make things more interesting here, when Crowley looked closer at the info card of the Horus statue that was the Ra Hulquit, the inventory number was that of 666. Anyway, here's a fun little detail that I found just a few days ago. Remember how he went to Egypt with Rose and he summoned Iwas, and Iwas told him, you know, this is that ethereal being, his guardian angel. Um, I think we pronounced it wrong. I believe it's Iwas. Iwas told him to sit down for three days and write this book of the law, right? Well, check this out, Presto. While I was researching stuff about Crowley, after a lot of digging, I found this article about a guy named George Ivanovich Gurdjieff, who wrote this book called Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson, or an objectively impartial criticism of the life of man. And dude, I fell into a what-the-fuck rabbit hole like none other, I actually found a PDF of that book and sent it to you. It's like 1,100 plus pages long. And I had to skim through this because I wanted to actually read this article and kind of decipher it myself. But the book is written as uh, from Beelzebub's point of view, narrating a history of the creation that allegorically explains the human condition to his grandson. And reading this thing is like a fucking brain teaser. Like reading the Bible almost. It's a lot of like henceforth and blah blah this and blah blah that so stick with me here everybody because we might just be getting into the origin of just who i was was and perhaps exactly where the entity had come from so back in 1903 england was planning to send over colonel francis young husband and a full-blown army to explore the land of tibet or aka invade them See, the English had a trading agreement with Asia that they had somewhat honored for quite a while, but suddenly England wanted to know more about Tibet, 
because some British asshole thought that maybe it didn't really belong to Asia, maybe it belonged to India, and so they should probably go explore it for themselves and maybe claim it for England. So anyway, hearing about this English army and how it was about to advance towards Tibet, all of the leaders, some from other parts of Asia and India, met together to discuss what exactly they were going to do about England coming over to potentially invade Tibet. And lo and behold, something truly bizarre had happened. This highly enigmatic group of seven entities showed up, and their leader began consulting all the other higher-ups of Asia and India and Tibet, who were all pretty much preparing to just ready all the armies and fight to the bitter end, when the leader of this strange seven people convinced the rest of the leaders of Asia that staying passive might just be the key to solving the problem of the invading English soldiers. So the strange esoteric group known only as the seven, or sometimes referred to as the seven three-brained beings, were this ethereal group of, you know, entities who were said to be from time to time uh, to be known to get involved in all sorts of worldly concerns, almost like this weird, like, Illuminati, right? And based on the writings of the philosopher and mystic G.I. Gurdjieff, these beings were said to be thousands of years old and rumored to be immortal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, and able to pretty much teleport to wherever they wanted to be or wherever they were needed, especially in times of crisis. So these beings didn't necessarily have three separate brains, even though they're called the three-brained beings, but instead they're just super highly enlightened, saintly Dalai Lama types, who had ascended past any other human being, both spiritually and mentally. They had control over the left side and the right side of the brain, and also the, the middle part there that kind of separates the humans from the animals, you know? And they were keenly focused on this idea of enlightenment and spirituality and the advancement of human beings into this new eon of humankind. That's called your uh, penal gland, by the way, when you... Uh, when you thanks. Right yeah, the, the third eye is what that is. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Yeah. The more you know. Yeah. But basically, Fucking they were working nerd. towards helping humanity. <laughs> basically, they were working on helping humanity advance into this new age of enlightenment. And throughout many Asian written texts, these seven beings supposedly were said to have randomly shown up at highly secretive meetings throughout the world uninvited, especially when it came to the dealings of human safety, longevity, and the dealings of mass war. So anyway, the day came. Colonel Young Husband showed up, and the leader of this enigmatic group, you know, this highly ascended master, decided that in order to make sure that Tibet would be safe during the initial encounter with England... The group of seven should also tag along just to oversee for the safety of Tibet. Well, as most of these stories do, things suddenly went tits up and chaos ensued. As all the leaders of Tibet met with the Colonel Young uh, husband, they began talking about peace and how to let them explore the area without bloodshed and invasion. The seven stood quietly off to the side, monitoring the exchange, when suddenly, without warning, one single gunshot rang out from an English rifle, and the leader of the seven dropped to his knees, bleeding out into the dirt. And then he pretty much dies immediately. So the remaining six of this surviving group of seven just started freaking out, like, holy shit, how can this be? You know, we're supposed to be immortal, we're these, you know, great entities, we show up and we solve problems, this has never happened before for thousands of years. They all freak out, 
gather up the corpse of their leader and retreat off into the ether. Because they're just like, what the fuck? We're not supposed to be here. But that's not where the story necessarily ends for this strange group of ethereal beings. So saddened by the loss of their leader, the remaining six took the corpse of their master to a hidden temple inside a mountain in Tibet and began desperately trying to communicate with the spirit of their deceased master for guidance on what exactly they're supposed to do. Are they supposed to stop? Are they supposed to find another seventh member? Are they supposed to try to ascend on their own? They don't really know what to do. They're just pretty much, you know, ronin. So for months, they study and they research through books and writing and texts that they have in this, you know, hidden mountainside uh, temple, trying to find ways to continue to reach higher states of consciousness and enlightenment, and finally, they think they've discovered a way to reach out to the spirit of their long-lost master, who at this point's just chilling out in the corner of the temple now, just weekend at Bernie style, just propped up against a column, just staring off into the fucking, you know, Neverland. They propped his body up, and they begin performing this ritual called the Om Sin Nu Shin Yu to contact his planetary soul or his consciousness that, you know, they assumed was just off into the ether. So for three nights, they continued to perform the ritual. When unfortunately, on the third night, something goes awry, causing this terrible calamity. The magical ritual didn't work, and without warning, a burst of energy erupted from the corpse of their fallen leader. And the temple exploded, killing the, uh, the surviving six members, destroying all the written texts, and leveled half the fucking mountain. But here's where things get a little more interesting. What was it that Crowley was obsessed with Preston? Something about the spiritual evolution of humanity? Yeah. Well, all this shit with the Seven had been trying to do and contacting their leader who was killed in the explosion and everything that happened. This all occurred right at the end of March and the beginning of April. In the same exact year now, in two, uh, sorry, 2004, <laughs> 1904, when Crowley was contacted by some entity out of nowhere called Iwas, which many people now believe that Crowley could have been contacted by the planetary spirit of the leader of the Seven in the form of an ethereal entity called Iwas. And that's why Iwas was so insistent that Crowley drop everything he was doing after they made contact, go to this hotel room or wherever it was, and start writing the book of the law. You know what? Set three days aside and just fucking start writing, pal, because I got a lot of shit to tell you and it's really important. That's because this entity was desperately trying to record the teachings and philosophies to further the teachings of the Seven and their new eon of humankind, which is awfully similar to the eon of Horus. So a lot of people believe that the moment he made contact was right at the same time this temple explodes in Tibet and kills off these, you know, seven ethereal beings. Hmm. So I'm not sure if you ever heard that story or not, but I thought it was just fucking batshit bonkers crazy. Oh, yeah, shit, that is. Like, I, 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 like, I like thinking that, you know, the body is, uh, so you got the, the, the dead body of the leader, right? And he's just chilling mm -hmm you know, decaying in the corner, probably right. getting some bloat <laughs> going on, filling up with a little gas. And, right, you right. know, the other six are, like, in the middle, like, om shabadipati, om shabada, and they're, like, sitting there doing their thing, and all the spiritual energy is, like, floating back into this dead corpse and, like, basically nuclear explosion, and, like, bam, motherfucker, dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you put your finger in some kind of, you know, ethereal light socket and just screwed the whole thing up. 
Mm. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> well, the last story I'm going to share is kind of a quick one here. After Cairo, Egypt, Alistair and Rose went to Sri Lanka to go hunting for bats because, for some fucking reason, all Alistair wanted more than anything in the moment was to make a custom belt out of bat fur. Because, you know, nothing sells, nothing says you're a, you know, big badass magician like a belt made out of bat fur. Dude, I'd like to have some boots, some shit kickers made out of bat fur. <laughs> I think with, that'd be pretty badass. With bat wings just hanging off the sides. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you could have bat wing spurs that just kind of dangle from the back. That would be kind of cool, man. Like some kind of gothic, uh, yeah. uh, who was that from the um, Greek mythology? Hermes that had the boots? Yeah. Hermes boots? Yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. Well, Wizard Street cred aside, he didn't manage to bag any fucking bats save for one that he somehow managed to clip because apparently he was a horrible shot. And this just caused the bat to fall down and die this horrible slow death. And Crowley just kind of felt sad for himself. Not the bat that he just killed, but for himself because his bat expedition, you know, again, went completely tits up. But that's okay because there would still be plenty of hot, sweaty bat action to come later that night. Because that evening, after they had both fallen asleep, Crowley said he awoke to a strange bat-like chirping sound coming from inside the darkness of their room. So excited, thinking that bats had entered the bedroom and he'd summoned some kind of bat familiar or a whole flock of these things, he gets a light turned up, and he finds that Rose is now standing at the foot of the bed, butt-ass naked, hissing and chirping like a bat. And right about the time that Crowley gets up enough courage to say, uh, uh Rose, dear, what is this all about? She then crumples to the bed in a fetal position and began convulsing and screeching just like the dying bat, mimicking its slow, painful death. <laughs> just to spite Crowley. And then shortly after that, with Crowley full now, just, you know, cartoon eyes, just big and, you know, bulking out of his skull, she simply drifts off to sleep. Uh, There's a joke that I can make, but I'm not going to make it. I'll tell you later. <laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> We've learned with HR that some jokes aren't meant to be told on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, those are the four little stories that I found in between the cracks that we had skipped. Preston, you got anything else to add here, buddy boy? Nope. Okay. That's all right, because we still have one final episode coming of Aleister Crowley. I think it'll be next week. We're going to throw all sorts of stuff at you. We're going to get out of, you know, all these funky wizard battles and everything else that he did. Because, again, like, there's tons of really great podcasts out there if you want to take a deeper dive into what exactly went on. But we're going to get into more of his influences on pop culture and some of the bands and musicians that he inspired. We're going to get into some alien abduction coincidences and a lot of other stuff. So I'm going to assume, dude, this next episode is going to be at least an hour and a half. Because the stuff I oh. have to add, it's going to be long and strong, so... Who knows, yeah. maybe we got two more episodes of this, but yeah, definitely look this up. There's a lot of really great stuff there that we left out, but I mean, I think we hit some high notes and kind of sparked your interest. My favorite part of all this still has to be the Battle of Blythe Road, though. All right, well, this one's short and sweet, and that's okay, because I have to be on a Zoom meeting at 8 o'clock in the morning. Gross. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, what can you do? Well, folks, thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. And if you're on the social media, please give us a like and a follow on Instagram. We are at PXL Paranormal. If you're on Facebook, we are the Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. Preston, any headway on the old YouTubers? 
Uh, where did I say we were at last time? 266? 267, bud. Oh, yeah. Well, all right. We haven't made any headway. We're still at 267. So, look, if you're watching this and you see the bottom of the right-hand screen and it says like and subscribe, you should probably follow that suggestion and like and subscribe uh, and help grow the show on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. And as always, if you need a beard, if you want a beard, if you want to grow a beard that's cooler than boots made from bat fur, then go over to BigDopsBeardBomb.com, use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order, and pick yourself up some scents like Bay Rum, Fresh, Citrus, Mint, Classic, and Sweet Tobacco. Get it all. Get it at Dobbs. Mm-hmm. And if you're in the Wichita area, please stop by and see our dear friend Leslie and the rest of the gang at CD Trade Post, Pawnee, and Seneca. And also, all you Wichita area listeners, please, if you find yourself out at a food truck rally or you're out at one of the farmer's markets, stop by and see our friends over at the Paranormal Egg Experience Food Truck. They've also expanded into a brick-and-mortar store where they sell even more awesome paranormal-themed goodies. The Paranormal.Cafe kind of down on the outskirts of Old Town. Please stop by and support them any way you can. Get some coffee, get some great sweet treats, get a Bigfoot burrito and some Squatch Tots. It's a phenomenal place, ran by some truly awesome people. And uh, here before too long, now that they're kind of settled in, we're going to drop down there and do an episode or two with the members of Paranormal.Cafe and maybe, Paranormal Maybe Experience. have some food while we're talking. Yeah. Ooh, maybe, yeah. Yeah, maybe yeah. before we're talking. That way we don't just you know, sit there and smack into the microphones. Yeah. Cool. All right, folks. Until next time, I'd like to raise this glass and say cheers to the weird shit in the world and those of us who love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the paranormal highway. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown, tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.